0: Official 420 episode of Sessions with Mary Jane. Uh, I am your host, Jordan Freed. And I'm your other host, Rena Ezra. And we have a a very fitting and a very special guest today Um, a trippy, hippie, uh, legend of sorts. He's been all around the world and back. uh, And he also has an illustrious film and television career outside of his hippiness um welcome to the oh, show larry hankin
1: <laughs> well thank you for having me that's uh how, how well, where did the Appalachian hippie where did you discover that how did you come about that
0: it's well, not I, wrong
1: i just want to know where it came from <laughs>
0: um no well I uh, I just did a little research uh, into your past, obviously oh, about we're,
1: the '60s and stuff, and yeah, like and we're, okay, we're cool.
0: comedians as well, so like the committee stuff is uh, very cool to us. Um, oh,
1: okay, uh, okay, then definitely I'm I'm a hippie. I'm a I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, the the '60s. Yeah, yeah
0: of course, <laughs> of course, yeah. No, nobody's a hippie anymore. Whatever
1: happened to the '60s?
0: That's what I wanted to know. (laughs) Because I think there were a lot of parallels in like 2019 to like 69. Like I think a lot of people were bringing that stuff up. Yeah,
1: yeah, but uh, we we, we started something and then we never finished it. And it just kind of disappeared. And everybody just had kids and got jobs. Cut their hair and that was it. Thank you and good night. (laughs) (laughs) It's just fucking weird, man. Uh So my, my 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 memory of hippiness is kind of cool, but whatever happened to it is a sort of a drag, man. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it just uh, now we're, we're in this BS, and uh, it's just gone the other way. It's like the the Republicans have are are now the hippies. Uh, you know, in the opposite direction, but but they're doing what we were doing. Mm-hmm. It's taking over the media, and you know nobody can think of anything else. But yeah. oh my God, that that's that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Omg is the new cry of the new the new hippie. I got to come up with a another name for it. it's not hippie. I mean, now what's going on now is the exact mirror image of the '60s. It's just so bizarre, but I guess uh, you know that's. Uh, I see. I don't think we're. Well, I mean, I got myself started here down in an, an alley that I, kind of. Uh, okay, it's. Um, uh, anti, anti intellectualism, anti liberalism, anti, anti. It's anti. Mm. That's it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. A- and uh, how do you, how do you deal with that, man? I mean, whoever owns the uh, uh, the airwaves, the yeah, the airwaves, the media. Whoever owns the media rules. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah, right yeah. now, uh, hippies are like a thousand years ago, man.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why we want to talk to people from your generation because you guys knew what was up. Um,
1: and- well, we thought we, we thought we did. If we did, this wouldn't be happening. We didn't know shit, man. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I was in San Francisco with, with the committee and that was, you know, uh, Mario Savio and Berkeley and hippies and long hair and LSD. But it it never really, uh, I and mean, there were there were, and there was pockets all over, you know, New York. But it, it really once I got to Hollywood, yeah, that all disappeared.
0: I you mean, you grew up it, in it New was, York, right? What was it like back? I'm far
1: Rockwell, Long Island. Yeah, no, I, what, what I when I what I grew up in was was total vapidness. It was like a fog. Uh, a a fog of fear like the fog of war it was the 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 fog of uh well right right now like like being incorrect you know my 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 parents try to be norman rockwell i mean that that's what started the downfall it's all norman rockwell's fault (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Norman Rockwellian of the United States is what's going on now. Mm. I mean, we've just totally bought all his Post Magazine doodles, yeah. droodles, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't think. Oh, I see where where I was going with this. I don't see the viability of Homo sapiens. That there you go. That's it, right mm. there i really don't Mm. thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that affirmation
0: well well, now i'm curious about that because like was it the the fatalism of our of our people and seeing this around that god
1: stupidity the stupidity (laughs)
0: because <laughs> you were touring as a like an early form of stand-up like there wasn't really stand-up comedy in that way like you were one of the early stand-ups in a lot of ways right like yeah i mean like
1: well i mean but i wasn't i didn't i couldn't cash in i couldn't monetize it <laughs> to, to talk in modern language uh no it i was i grew up well okay i grew up in a very vapid protected uh muffled Cotton filled world, a home, a house in Farrakhaway. So when I went to college in Syracuse University, I wanted to be an artist. Those are my paintings. I'm a painter. I'm a painter. I'm a storyteller. That's what I am. Uh, But that was all denied. So I couldn't do any of that. No jokes, no painting. Gotta be a lawyer or a doctor. That was it. And uh, I didn't know any other um, choices. I mean, that, that, was my, my, my choices, uh, doctor or lawyer. So, and I didn't want to go to college. I, I had no interest in college, but I, I was also a good son. This is what I mean. A good son. I I was brought up to be a good son. I am the second generation immigrant. So it wasn't filtered out yet. The, the European version of America and the American never really could get into my house. (laughs) They just (laughs) barred. Uh, So a good son uh, of of an immigrant, of of a first-generation immigrant, a good son goes to college and becomes a doctor or a lawyer and takes care of his parents legally and medically when they... Get too old to shut you down anymore. <laughs> so uh, that's what I grew up in. I went to college uh, because of uh, they. I, I could only go to a college that was near, not not too far away, is how they put it. And also, it had to be a career, some sort of career. So I saw I, I and I, and therefore my. Cognitive thinking was just totally shut off. I mean, there was no... Uh, I couldn't make any decisions on my, on my own. It had to be ha- handed to me. You know, here's what you do. Here's what you say. Uh, and I went along with it. That was the weird thing about me. Not about... It was about me that it never really kicked in. Uh, I, and there's many reasons why. Okay. Uh, so I went to college because I saw at Syracuse University, I had a course in industrial design. So I bought into, that's why I remember my cognitive thinking, I bought into the design part of the two words, thinking <laughs> that industrial design meant how art affects an industry and how industry affects art. I, I, that's perfectly cool. But that, no, that's not what it was about. And I had signed up, and I because I could go to Syracuse, which is a three way ride of five hours to get there. I thought that's far enough away from home. No, no, because basically the colleges were built like your home. I, I only knew what was taught and fought at Syracuse University, there was no outside influence. Now, this was the 60s. And so when I got home, after five years of college, five-year course, I was still thinking like like I was at home. Even that five years, I did not change my mind or my thinking ability one whit. (laughs) I love that (laughs) phrase. (laughs) One whit. Uh, So I was a good student because I was a good son, so... A good son is a good student. So I, I got like a, A's, A minus, my average. You know, I was cool uh, in, in those terms. And when I graduated, uh, on, on my senior year, I didn't know this, but this is what was going on in, in the background of, of the industrial design department. And I guess in all other departments, Syracuse University was kind of a famous college. So they had a a lot of input there. And uh, so Detroit, who designed cars, you know, Ford, Chevy, all those things. I didn't know this, but they had signed up a lot of the uh, all these car manufacturers in Detroit had signed up a lot of industrial design colleges, colleges where they could Uh, get people to, to design cars. I went to the colleges and say, send us, your, you know, Seth, first of all, send us your A students and we'll take them for a tour. So that was it, the senior thing. I went on a tour of all the uh, Ford Motor Company. I believe it was Ford Motor Company. So I went with uh, me and another guy from Syracuse and there was four other colleges. So there's about eight or 10 of us. Uh, that were flown there you know and we stayed for a weekend and they took us for a tour through everything the design department and I wasn't impressed at all I mean <laughs> you know when you're in college you know they say well you know think outside the box that was the industrial design mantra of college you think outside the box well outside the box is just a bigger box <laughs> it's a box within a box it's like a Chinese you know yeah. <laughs> the Russian dolls.
0: Yeah.
1: so uh, you know that, that meant nothing once I got there and I uh, so I went over to this is the, the, the turning point yeah. as they're taking us through the tour we're going through the design department where all the artists sit <laughs> the graduates the A students from the other colleges uh, designing stuff. And on their desks, they had, you know, their projects, I guess it was a Saturday that we took the tour. So I picked up, uh, they had these little plaster Paris, uh, cars that they had uh, designed and, and built little white models there, you know, about little, about as big as that. Mm-hmm. So I picked one up and I'm looking at it, you know? So the tour guide, who was actually one of the designers who was assigned, you know, to take us around, uh, saw that I was the only one who picked up or touched anything on anybody's desk, and I picked it up. And I was looking at it, and he goes, "Oh, you really like that, huh?" And I said, "Well, actually, no. I was expecting a little more from Ford. This is not that great." Uh, and he said, uh, "So he didn't say anything, but the look on his face was not cool. You know, it was. It was uh, so I thought." Oh, he, uh, wrong thing to say. Okay. So then we went, went on and then we go to, and I was just, after that I was like dissing everything to myself. I go to the guy next to me, but I, I thought just cool it, Larry. And then uh, they took us to the, to, uh, the, the cafeteria. Well, what was it? it was a restaurant where, where, you know, if you go for lunch or dinner or whatever, it was like a campus. All of those places are like campuses. They're like universities. They have quads and different buildings and stuff. So we go to the end. And they say, well, uh, this is the cafeteria. And really, it was like an upscale New York restaurant. It was beautiful. It was great. So I was really impressed with this. And I, I did say out loud, I said, wow, man, this is cool. And he, the guy smiled. I thought, oh, OK, well, Got on the other side of him. Great. And I said, So, so, well, man, we can we, we eat lunch here and uh, and dinner? And he goes, Oh, no, no, this is the executives' cafeteria. You, you don't eat here. And I go, What? Then why are you showing this to us, man? I mean, if we can't eat here, why are you showing? What are you trying to impress us? What the hell's going on? And I just, you know, he just said, You don't want to work here, do you? And I thought, right in that second, I thought, there's nothing I can say in Detroit that will be okay. Yeah. It's just, I'm going to, every, so when I went back to, you know, the university and I graduated, I thought, I'm not, I, I can't do that. That's just not, no. So and also, they also said, yes, uh, yeah, we like it. Don't send Larry Hankin. I mean, <laughs> it was just. So uh, I, my best friend at Syracuse University was Carl Gottlieb, who wrote, later on, all the Jaws movies. Wow. You know, but we didn't know that then. Yeah. We were just college guys, you know, and we, we, so we hung out together. And so when I got back, this is my senior year, you know, five years, man. And he was graduating at the same time and he was in the drama department. He wanted to be a writer. He always wanted to be a writer. Uh, so I said to him, I said, well, you know, where, where are you? So now we're going to graduate together. I mean, not, you know, not together, but at the same time. So I said, where, where are you going when we we graduate? And he says, well, I'm going to Greenwich Village, man. I'm going to be a writer, you know. Uh, I go, Greenwich Village? What's that like? So I didn't know what.
0: Okay, wow. Yeah, there was,
1: you know, that was the beginning of the 60s. I mean, now... So I said, that sounds cool. I, that's why I mean, the, the word Greenwich Village, because I grew up in Far Rockway, Long Island. So on weekends, I would take the train into New York and hang out at Greenwich Village or go to 42nd Street and hang out at the Metropole where Cozy Cole used to play jazz, you know, so jazz or Greenwich Village, you know. The, and so I kind of knew hippie, but I didn't know the language. I didn't know the costume. I just recognized it as oh, Martians, wow, cool, you know, and, and jazz uptown there, uh, and, oh, man, Cozy Coal, Topsy, number two, incredible, so that was new to me, so I, I went with Carl, and we moved to Greenwich Village, and that's where the 60s were introduced to me and that kind of thinking and and I was still dressed in, in a suit you know uh or, or not in a suit but you know that kind of Norman Rockwell yeah. and uh, what I did was uh because I was an industrial designer there's there's no need in the 60s for an industrial designer in Greenwich Village so I I uh, was a cleaning up bars at night or one particular bar, sweeping up bars from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. I would clean up the bar, you know, peanut shells and all that stuff. And, uh, and, and I would steal food because uh, you don't make much money cleaning a bar to, from 2 to 6. So I would, you know, go into the, a bar and grill. So I would take uh, protein and, uh, you know, rashers of bacon I would stick in my belt. And wear a raincoat. I would wear a raincoat to work, just like uh, uh, Harpo Marx. That's where I got the idea from.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: what I made me think of. Yeah, he just, you know, and he steals steal his spoons and all that yeah, stuff. God. You know, he'd open his raincoat and he'd clank, 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 clank. Woo! <laughs> so that's what I was doing. I was sticking you know, I was sticking it in my clothes and then wear the raincoat over it so you wouldn't see any bulges. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, after about a month or so, I thought, I got to quit because uh, I didn't like it, Uh, but I I mean, I didn't like the the job, but I was okay with making, you know, a dollar an hour or whatever the hell I was making. I don't know what, but it was okay. I thought there would be other jobs a little better than this around, but I I never looked back on industrial design and they they were paying like, you know, $100,000, $75,000 a year just to go there. And that was okay with me. I, that's not what I'm, what I'm about. I just wanted to change my mind. That's what I wanted to do. Change my mind. And I thought, okay, this is a good place. This is gonna do it. <laughs> so I sat hanging out. I, I was voted funniest in high school Two years in a row, my junior year and senior year. So I thought, I'm funny. And I started hanging out at the, the coffee houses and uh, the open mic nights. You know, you get three minutes, you go up on stage. So there's just folk singers and male stand-up comedians. That, that was it. That was, that was the village. Yeah. Wow. Male stand-up comedians and folk singers. So the girls could get up on stage and the women could get up on stage if they had a guitar. So I, I just knew uh, funny people who were giving me new information as to what's funny now. You know, politics is funny. I never knew that, and uh, guitars. So you know, guitar. So uh, that was that was cool. That that okay. I, I'm here, and I thought, wait, I'm funny. I could get. A, I can do three minutes. I, you know, I can do that. So. Um, That's what I started to do, and uh, because I I guess I have a funny gene, because my (laughs) learning curve was really steep. I mean, it is steep to begin with, it was just easy for me. You know, uh, I I, I grokked it a bit. I mean, I wasn't funny in the beginning. I I still have well memories, and I have uh, little snippets of tapes that I made that was just terrible I wasn't funny at all i was curious I'm gonna, I,
0: I'm gonna i'm gonna try to uh, break into your house and steal some of those tapes i want to see some of those tapes from back then those are probably really Oh no
1: yeah, no there were there had to be first of all they were audio there was you couldn't oh uh, yeah that was the yeah. 60s there were, there were no digital yeah
0: well no, no internet <laughs>
1: yeah. uh but uh i did pick it up so three minutes and then they gave me four minutes and then they asked me to you know uh, MC the the weekend show, which was money you get paid. Uh, so and then in six months, I was opening for Woody Allen and Miles Davis. And I go, oh, I made it, you know. I mean, the, the changing my mind, I had not made it in the big time, but all right,
0: but, we got to stop, we got to stop right there. What was Miles Davis like? Like, were you hanging out with him? Like,
1: well, I, well, I tried to, he, he. Uh, I I didn't have the language down. I had the the thinking down because Miles loved my comedy. Nice. And and he would, uh, I didn't know this. Uh, They told me this. Uh, I had worked, it was at the Cellador in Washington, D.C., which is a very hip Tony Bistro. Uh, in in Washington, D.C., and a lot of the politicians, that's their nightclub. So that's why Miles Davis was booked in there. So they called me and they said, so I worked there like three or four times. Uh, Here's the deal. When I was up on stage doing three and four minutes, then I got to do the weekends. So I was was getting like a 20-minute hunk, and I could do that. I come off stage one night, and there's this guy in a suit, and he said, uh, hey, "Yeah, it was a very good show. You know, you're pretty funny. I said, You know, thank you very much." He said, "You got a manager?" I go, "No, I'm nobody. You know, that's why I'm here, trying to get representation." He said, "Well, I'm a manager. How would you would you like a manager?" I go, "Oh yeah, man. That's why we're here. That's why we're all here. Because uh, yeah, that was the thing when you we went to." Greenwich Village to get up on the stage, to, you know, to get seen and do your stuff, you're not there to be famous. You're not there to make money. You're there to get representation. You want to get a manager or an agent to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. And, and so when he said, would you like a manager? I'm, representation. I mean, if you get representation in the village, you're king shit, man. You're, you're, the, you're the top of the food chain you know, Hey, I got a manager. Wow, man, you got a manager. And then, <laughs> and, then you di- and then you disappear because they start booking you. You know, he's, what happened to, you know, Jerry, he, he got a manager, man. He's gone. It's like getting out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> he's gone, man. He's being booked all over. So I said, yeah. And he said, well, how, how would you like me? I'm a manager. So I said, okay. I mean, it was, that was that was the whole thing, you know. I go walk off the stage as a guy standing there. How would you like a manager? Yeah, I'd like one. How about me? Yeah, fine. He said, "Okay, I'm your manager. Tell everybody I'm your manager. My name uh, is... Oh man, I forgot his name. will uh, uh, it'll come to me while I'm talking to you. Uh, but uh, he was Woody Allen's manager, uh, and so." he started book. I disappeared. I I went out of the village. I At this point, my... Woody
0: Allen's just doing comedy. Has he done any films yet?
1: He, n- no, he wasn't was Woody movie Allen movie? yet. Yeah. yeah
0: he, he
1: wasn't was. even Woody Allen. He just had started. And the reason that, uh, Jack Rollins is his name. So, um,
0: it,
1: now, I didn't know who Jack Rollins was. He said, if anybody asks you, if you got a manager, you got a manager. My name's Jack Rollins. You tell him, that's who your manager is. Okay. Now, I didn't know who Jack Rollins was or is. Oh, yeah, it was was. He passed on now. But when we got to talk in the, uh, the Tin Soldier, the tin, so that was a bar next door to where I was playing in the village. Uh, we would sit around and if you had a manager, if you had representation, you had bragging rights, you could bring that up at the table. Yeah, you know, so you know, blah blah blah. Hey, I got a manager, man. Oh, really? Uh, who is it? Um, I don't know. It's this guy. Uh, I can't remember his name. I uh, Jack Rollins. Jack Rollins, man. He he handles. Um, no, he uh, I, he handles Harry Belafonte. That guy's big, man. Uh, I thought, really? Yeah. So who else does he? Have? <laughs> very fine. okay so who else is yeah I, I, I don't know and then um, there was a two nightclubs within the greenwich village am i going on too long i'm just oh no, this is amazing No, no,
0: no. keep going. oh know.
1: so so um uh, there's two nightclubs in greenwich village um, among the, the coffee houses' there's about 140 coffee houses with a stage in Greenwich Village in five blocks. I mean, it just, you just, well, if you got your three minutes, you just go here, you sign up, you go there, sign up, you go there. And by the time you sign up in about five or 10, you come back and you're on, you know, you're the first one you signed up is you're ready to go on. And then you just come off and go to the next one and boom, boom, boom. So you could do like five or six sets in one night, which is an incredible way of, really getting your, your shit together, you know, and, and, and uh, because in any other venue, or if you have 20 minutes or something like that, you you know, five in one night, that's like five times, like say four nights, uh, open mic nights. And then the rest is, you know, the big time. (laughs) <laughs> <Big> the <time.
0: laughs> coffee house
1: yeah. hey, Saturday night. Hey I got a Saturday night, I'm opening <laughs> for you know, blah, blah. Yeah, like Cafe Tom War. Rush. I'm opening Cafe for War Tom bitter Rush. End
0: type places? Excuse me, are you at like Cafe Wa, bitter anti places? Right. Exactly,
1: you yeah. know. The, oh, wait a minute, you guys are from New York.
0: Yeah, we yes. live in New
1: Jersey. Yeah. Oh, but you know the village. Oh, okay. So yeah, the Cafe Wa. Uh, I was at uh, the Tin Angel. It was a Tin Angel, not the Tin Soldier. It was a Tin Angel, <laughs> and Cafe Wa. I played Cafe Wa. I I played uh, the. What, what was the two things you
0: named?
1: A Bitter End. Bitter End. I played the Bitter End. You know. And I, I, yeah. So that was that was it. So, um, but but also there was. Upstairs at the downstairs, Jim Paul Isler's upstairs at the downstairs. That was a nightclub. Uh-huh. And the other one was Basin Street. Basin Street was in the Greenwich Village, man. That was like the, the mecca of jazz. And Lenny Bruce was playing there. And there was two people who I was told in the time I was in Greenwich Village, which was the 6 months period of, of, of my learning, there was two, only two people who anybody ever said, You gotta go see this guy. You gotta go. Nobody ever came and said, You gotta see this woman <laughs> or this girl or this gal. Nobody said there was you gotta see this guy. But there was two in the in the six months that I was there, only two. Can you imagine who they were? Well, I'll tell you. One was Lenny Bruce. You gotta see this guy. He's at Basin Street, and that was just like down the block. It was like two blocks away from The Bitter End. Uh, oh, oh, wait a minute. I was at the Village Vanguard. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basin Street West was in New York and Basin Street was uptown. No, it was the Village Vanguard. Lenny Bruce was a plane, And the other one was Bob Dylan. You got to go see this guy. And that was before Bob Dylan was Bob Dylan, before Lenny Bruce, before Woody Allen was in. These are all the, in the early 60s. So I went to see Lenny and and I didn't get him at all. I, so that's how far gone my thinking was. And didn't get him. And then the audience loved him. I mean, he was just up and coming, man. So the audience is breaking up and I'm going, ah, you know, he's not that funny. Come on, man. But <laughs> of course, he was great, you know. Of course, so yeah. I've seen him four times in person. And so I became a believer. So. But okay, and then the other thing was Bob Dylan. You know, I went to see uh, see Bob Dylan. I said the same thing: guy can't fucking sing. You can't play the guitar. What the fuck? <laughs> and I walked out. I walked out on Bob Dylan. I, at least I stayed for the show on on Lenny Bruce. And I walked out. I just what the. F-
0: <laughs> ringing in my ears. Yeah. Now, luckily, it's good to know that seven years ago I was getting the authentic experience still.
1: Oh. <laughs> seven years ago? Okay. That's cool. That's cool. (laughs) But seven years ago, you were probably like a kid, right? So somehow. yeah,
0: Or whatever, 10 years ago, whenever I saw him, he was doing. um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. But see, I was, I was a little older. I I think I had done five years of college and then this is, you know, six more months, maybe another. So I, I should have known better, but anyway, I, I was just absorbing. I was trying to get with it. You know,
0: yeah,
1: and so, uh, so when I walked out on Bob Dylan, the the interesting point of that was, uh, they said he was playing at the Gaslight. The Gaslight is that still there? I guess it is. Yeah. So he's uh, playing yeah, back, downstairs, and the bar upstairs was the uh, the there was a bar upstairs. You know, so you that was where they hung out. Okay, and the Tin Angel, two bars, so. I when I went to see Bob Dylan, um, I, you know, I I had to get off my set. I was doing a set. It was like a you know Wednesday or something like that. I was doing a three minute or seven minutes. So I had to do this thing, and I got I ran down, and it was packed. Uh, the gaslight was packed, so I couldn't get in. I mean, I could get in, mm-hmm. but I had to stand by the the door. In other words, I, I got inside, and that was it. I. So I was standing by the the door in and I I said, okay, it doesn't matter. I'll just stand here. Um, And Bob Dylan comes in the door. And Bob Dylan at that time, he's a little guy. He's got that cap. And and he's got this 12-string guitar in a 12-string guitar case. So the guitar case in my mind was as big as Bob Dylan was. (laughs) So yeah, he's carrying his big twelfth ring guitar. I'm like, this is who they told me to run over and see? And he, you know, elbows his way in, you know, and get through the crowd, and he gets up on the stage, and he starts to play, and he, oh, the other thing is, the so that's the first thing I noticed, is that the guitar case is as big as he is. He's got this cap on. And he's surrounded by a gaggle of about 8 or 9, 12 to 15-year-olds. That that was in my mind. Now, maybe they were 16, but they couldn't have been older than that. No fucking way. They were really – I got public school, just maybe starting high school. That was about it. And they followed him in. That, that was his – fan group or something he gets up on stage and everybody claps and he starts to sing he i i don't even think i let him get through one song Uh, it was just awful it was just bob if you're listening you know i've learned my lesson but it was just awful Uh, so i I walked out okay now there's a point to that but i just walked out now i was right near the door so i could just turn and get out okay Years, uh, I, I want to just pick up on that point. Years go by. There's a lot happening in between, but I'm playing at the committee now. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're like a hit now. We're, we're a tourist attraction type of stuff. This is years later. Uh, and I'm sitting in the kitchen waiting to go on in between shows. We did the first show. No, we did the, the last show Uh, On a Saturday night, I think it was. And uh, so I'm sitting in the kitchen waiting for the crowd to get out. So I I don't have to, you know, go through. So they're emptying out the theater now and going out. So I'm sitting, I'm talking to the chef or whatever. And that waiter comes back and says, "Um, Bob Dylan's in the lobby. He wants to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) He wants to talk to me? Yeah. He's he's with his road manager. I don't know who he's with. Yeah, there are two of them. They're waiting. Now, years have gone by. I've come around. I mean, I think he's a genius. You know, I got all that down. This is now this is a 61. So it's a year. It's at least a year later. At least a year later. I've changed. My mind has come around. I got it. I got his records and stuff. OK. So I go, what the hell is Bob? And want to talk to me about I, I know he's great he was playing in Berkeley you know that's that was what the venue of hit that's why he was in town but what is he doing here and I didn't want to go talk to him I, I didn't know what to say or what and then I suddenly realized why he wanted to talk to me he wanted to talk to me because he's going to ask me why I walked out at on him at the gaslight <laughs> that's why he wants to talk to me so I, before I went out there, I had to get an answer. Uh, uh, my, 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 my mom is in the hospital. I got a phone call. Uh, uh, I, had to, I had to go to the bathroom. Uh, I, I couldn't, I'm trying to come up with why I walked out. I can't say, because you're a god fucking awful, man. No, I couldn't say that. So I, I, I walked out and I'm still trying to think. Now, the, the lobby is cleared. But there's, you know, but we had like a a lobby and you could buy a drink and you could sit at a table and wait to go in. So it was kind of like a restaurant theater. No big meals. You could maybe get a a sandwich and a beer and wine and you sit at a table in the lobby. OK, so I get out. The lobby is cleared now. The audience is out and sitting at a table. Well, surrounding a table, one table is all our customers. About, there was about 15 or 20 of the, the people who were watching our show, you know, just ordinary real customers, audience people, normal Norman Rockwellian people gathered around something that was going on at the table. So I'm thinking, and the, the waiter says, he's in there. He's sitting at that table. So I push my way in, and I sit down. I got my my excuse ready to tell him why I walked out. <laughs> and I sit down, and he's sitting with Bobby Newark, who was who's, who's even funnier than, than me. He's a funny guy. I mean, really funny. I guess I, I, know, oh, I know why Bob Dylan hangs around with Bobby Newark. That's why. He's smart. I sit down, and... I can't figure out why an adult population of about 10 or 12 of our audience is just standing around staring at Bob Dylan and is like it's a museum or like he's a wax figure. And I thought, what must it be like to be Bob Dylan, man? To be sitting at a table and, and you know, he's trying to, So I sit down and I said, hi, Bob, you know, uh, and he goes, oh, hi, Larry. Hi, you know, uh, Bobby Newark. And Bobby Newark immediately says, let's get out of here. This place is giving me the willies or whatever he was saying. He said, let's get out of here, man. This this place is, I don't know, something. This place is, whatever he said was right on. Uh, Weird. That's what he said. Let's get out of here. This place is too weird. Is what he said. And then Dylan said, "Okay, can we go to a bar or something?" So we went to uh, around the corner. Okay. So I said, "What? What? What? do you want to talk about?" Uh, I because I didn't want to tell him what, why I walked out. And he said, "I uh, uh, I want you to write me something. Do you want me to write you something?" I mean, this guy's a writer. He's a songwriter. Well, so so he starts telling me what to me was just gobbledygook weirdness <laughs> but so then, so he says, well, you know it's kind of a now this is what he, what he what he said I, 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 he said oh okay so so um." It's like it's like in a bar, but Sammy Davis Jr. is tap dancing on the bar, and the wallpaper is all newspapers. And then we cut to like um, some, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't know what you, what you call it. You know, when, in um, high school basketball, they have these fold-out bleachers, these fold-out bleachers. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's what you said. So uh, Sammy Davis is tap dancing on the bar, and – Walls are wallpapered with newspapers. And then we cut to some bleachers on a highway. Uh, and, and I go, wow. Oh, uh. And Bobby Newer, and he just kept on going like that. And Bobby Newer says, he, he gives Dylan an elbow. And he says, hey, Bob, he doesn't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't. I was just sitting there confused as hell. Now, what I didn't know. See, I'm, it's all ketchup. Every, K E T C H U P. U-P.
0: Yeah. <laughs> ketchup.
1: It's all ketchup. It's all catching up, man. In other words, every time I thought, okay, I got this down, I'm a hippie now. And then some new information, what the fuck is this now? What, you know, I, I could, you know, now, now it's LSD. I just got into marijuana. What, <laughs> stop. I can't keep up. So now Dylan is... I just heard his records. I'm trying to catch up to that. And now he's telling me something else. Now, what I didn't know was I didn't know about MTV. What Dylan was telling me was he was just talking in flashing images, uh-huh. like his songs became and how what, what MTV's videos were of songs. Yes. What I didn't know until years later. It took me about a year to figure out what Dylan was saying. Was he wanted me to write a music, an MTV video for him yeah, I was for this new song, video, yeah. you know about about you know uh, Highway sixty one.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: That was all, very simple. <laughs> and I said well, wh-, I because I didn't know what to say when he said, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Dylan said, I know, I know, just leave me alone, will you? Because he, he understood that I didn't get it. So he was going to try to explain it in my terms. Yeah. So Dylan knew what was going on. It's just that Bob didn't, knew it, didn't have any patience. So uh, he tried once more. Dylan tried once. But I couldn't grok what the hell uh, MTV. I, I couldn't. Then a couple of weeks later, somebody showed me MTV. Because this is the beginning of the 60s right? It was the beginning of MTV. And he was in New York, Dylan. So he, I, I figured this all out. He probably, everybody was coming to him with the new stuff, right? Hey, how about this? Hey, how about this? And he just came to me with that. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why did you come? So I was trying to like obf- obfuscate, you know, get away from the question of I didn't understand. I said, why are you talking to me? How do you even know I'm here? You're from New York. You're playing in Berkeley. And how did you show up here? Why are you talking to me? That's what I said to him. Yeah. I said, why are you talking to me? I don't get this. He said, you used to play um, the Gaslight, right? I go, yeah. He said, well, I was playing in the village. And people said, hey, you got to go see this guy, Larry Hankin. So I went to see you, and you're really funny, you know, and you were opening for Dave Van Ronk, right? I go, yeah. He said, yeah, well, I used to come to see you when you were in the village. I go, whoa. So he was a fan of mine.
0: Wow. That's wild.
1: Oh, that was that blew my mind, man, when I heard that. So because now because I was a fan of his at that moment, you know. So he said, you know, yeah, I used to come and see you all the time. You're really funny. So I thought maybe you could write me something. So, so well, I said, well, I I don't know. So he says, okay, and and Newark wanted to just get out of. I, I, he had no patience for me, Newworth. Yeah. I mean, we've become friends since then, and and I Newark is the best. He's better than Dylan. He's Dylan. But, but then, uh, okay, I don't know who this guy is. So Dylan said, because Neweth wanted to get, get out of there, he said, look, uh, we got to leave. So, but we'll talk. Dylan says to me, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. Goodbye. Okay. And they split. And they left me sitting in this bar. Okay. So that's why I had to explain walking out of the gaslight you know the hookup was uh but that was how i got into to show business and, and stuff from that i got the manager and then i was opening for woody and from there uh club owners who who hired woody and uh i didn't know this i, I didn't know this but um you, you said, uh miles davis you asked me a question about miles davis the thing about miles davis was i had played the cellar door a couple of times now that i I had woody other club owners would say well who opened for woody we got a a a a famous stand-up comedian or we got a famous singer we need a, a comedian opener you know and then uh um jack rollins who had a, a big roster of very funny people, the top-of-the-line people. They'd say, well, we got this new guy, Larry Hankin, you know, why don't you book him? So I got a reputation for opening for famous people now. That, that was cool, from, from Woody to... So that's why I was opening for, for Miles. That's why they hired me. They had seen me at my act. Now Jack was touting me. And, and he said, he would, be, he would go good with Miles. So why don't you book Larry? So oh yeah, he's been here before with lesser people. We'll hire him to open for, for Miles. So I did open for Miles, you know, the opening night. I think I would two weeks. But what I didn't know was that Miles has in his contract that he has to approve of who opens for him, which I understand totally. You know, as a headliner, you know, if you got a bad person, it's really hard to bring the crowd around back, you know. Yeah. So, so I, I thought that was cool. I didn't know this at the time. Anyway, I, I opened for Miles. We opened, and then the next night, or, or as I, yeah, the next night when I came in to do the second night, the owner of the cellar door said, uh, "Okay, so uh, you're okay for the rest of the run." I said, "What do you What do you mean? I'm okay for the rest of the run? You just..." I've, that's already been decided. You're, I'm hired to open for for Miles. He said, "No, no, he has to approve of you. We okayed you for the opening night. If you were fired, we'd have to pay you for the two weeks. That's no problem. But you couldn't go on if he said no. We'd have to hire somebody else because we do have a contract with you. But he came and see. In other words, Miles was in the audience." Before he went on he, to watch the opening act, and he gave me the okay, and then at the end of the run, Miles wanted me to to open for him in Europe. He he goes from Salador to tour Europe, so he said, "You know, how about?" He said, "Hey Larry, you're you're really funny. Let's go to Europe." And I said, "I I can't, I, I because to to me Europe was like a terra incognita. I mean, I just." I thought my my fate and and my future uh, lies beyond the yellow brick road uh, in in America. I, I just so I, I turned it down. I don't I don't know if that was a mistake or not, but but uh, I turned it down, uh, and that that. Is the only kind of regret that I have about show business at all? I mean, it would have been great to tour Europe with Miles, but at the time I, I wasn't up to it. I, I didn't have the information enough to to, uh, to to see it as a wow, man! What a trip that would be. Uh, so,
0: uh, it like but you th- had a lot of it. good timing in your career for sure. It's, Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. A lot of good timing, like with your decisions. Like it seemed like they well, were. Well, you know,
1: good, good and bad. And I thought, to me, it all levels out. It's you know, you, you get it when you get it. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, some people are born getting it and some people it's kicked out of them. I think everybody's born with you. You're born to get it and you're, you're born to do it. It's just your parents don't allow you to, or I remember once I I lived with a woman who had a, a small child, uh, which was great, you know? Uh, so, uh, we got along great, me and the kid. He was about four, four years old or something. But I, I remember what happened uh, w- when you get it and not get it. Um, I told I, I would write in the attic. We had a, a little cottage; it was a tiny little cottage, but there was an attic in the cottage. So I would write up there, and I would tell the, the kid because he would, it was into everything. You know, I, you have the locks on everything. I, and so I told him, but he would go upstairs and he would look at my desk, and he would mess it up, you know. No, no, oh boy! So I I pulled him aside and I gave I gave him an adult talking to. Try that, you know. Try talking like an adult to a four year old. They don't. It's bullshit. I mean. They understand enough that they understand that this guy is talking bullshit to me. They don't understand what you're saying, but they know it has nothing to do with them. (laughs) They just know that. So I'm saying, look, uh, uh, I'll say his name is Peter. Look, Pete, you can't touch my stuff. You you can't touch my stuff. So don't, don't even go upstairs. That's where I write. That's where I write. So, okay, don't do that. And he goes, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I come home the next day or whatever, and I go upstairs, places. I go, hey, hey, Peter, come in here. Did you go upstairs? Yeah. Did you play around with stuff? Yeah. What did I tell you? I told you not to go up, you know, and I'm going through this. What did I tell you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. And I'm starting to, like, lose it. I'm, trying to hold it in, but it's, okay, the third time, then the fourth time, so the fifth time, I go, I go, hey, man, don't, look, no! stop it, don't touch me, stop, I have to, all right. And, and he's, now I'm scaring the kid, uh-uh. go, okay, okay, all right, I'm, I'm sorry, okay, I, just please don't do it. So now I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the living room doing whatever I'm doing, and I hear in the kitchen crash, glass breaks. Say, so, hey, Peter, come in here. What's going on? He comes in. What's going on? Nothing.
0: <laughs>
1: I nothing. What was, what was that? I heard glass break. I don't know. So I go in the kitchen. There's a glass. The water is running in the sink there's a stool up against the sink (laughs) and there's shattered drinking water glass on the floor. And I say, did you do that? Were you trying to get a glass of water? Did you drop that? And he goes, no. And I go, okay, all right, thank you. And I let him go and I cleaned up the mess. And what it taught me was, I had taught the kid to lie.
0: Mm. Yeah. <clears throat>
1: very very simple. simple.
0: Good lesson. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. And the only way I got rid of that guilt, and it, it took me a long time, I never hollered at that kid again, ever. I mean, we were still friends, but whew, what a blow that was to me. Uh, that fucked that me up for, a, for, for months, man. Until finally I had to talk myself out of it. And the way I did it was uh, I, I told myself, I said, look, you know, once doesn't do anything to anybody. So, you know, he lied to you. Maybe, maybe that was his first lie. I don't know what he did with his mom, you know, but life is getting hollered at and breaking things and making mistakes. So, that's called life kid, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, but there are other times he's gonna make mistakes and he's gotta learn, you know, who's what and when to lie and when not to. I mean, you know, I'm gonna kill your mother if you, tell, if you don't tell me where she is and she's hiding in the closet, you're not gonna tell where mom is. Yeah. That's a good lie, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's a good lie. Uh, so, you know, figure it out kid. And then, okay, weight off my shoulder. But it took me a while, it, it, it did. And I've, to this day, I told you that story because I remember it as long as I live, man. Oh. To, to, to make, to, to, to see what I did, the whole act, one, two, three, four, five, bang. Yeah, that was, that was, that was heavy.
0: Wow, that sounds like it. So to pivot a little bit, how did, how did you start getting into film and acting? What people probably- for all the
1: money. I, I just did it for the money. And I was never about money. And uh, it taught me a, a great lesson of, of what a, I, I think there was two. I believe there was two, 14 years of my life that were complete. Well, not complete, but pretty near complete waste of my time. The, the, the what, Five years. So it's 15 years. The five years in college, total waste of time. And uh, the 10, what is it, longer than 70? Well, the, the last, the first 15 years in Hollywood or the last 15 years in Hollywood well, were a complete waste of time. Uh, the first 15 years in Hollywood, because it took me that long to learn I don't belong here. It's like Detroit. You know, you you don't want to work here, do you? Well, I don't like what the shit you're turning out, man. You know, every movie, you know, every TV show was like that. So it took me 15 years and and I stayed another 15 or 20 years because the money was so good and the money was the trap, you know, because now I had, in in, in, in the, the committee and on the road, the rent was very nominal. Either I didn't have a place to stay, so I was staying in hotels, but the bookings were enough to pay the hotel bill and give me mad money, you know, to go do whatever I wanted and play and pay for plane tickets and everything like that. And I still had money left over. And I always had another gig because Jack was always booking me ahead, you know. So there was no worry about money and uh, I was having fun. But then when the critical thinking came and the cops started pulling me off the stage uh, uh, and and people were throwing beer bottles at me and coming at me with, you know, get the Could fuck you talk off more the about stage. Sorry,
0: yeah, we wanna hear about this, especially like with all the uh, abuse that comedians take today. I want to, I wanna hear about this, yeah. <laughs> Oh well, well. Um, compared to fingers. what you you have, yeah. finger finger quotes for yeah. the audience <laughs> listeners, yeah. Oh oh oh, I okay.
1: see. Okay, <laughs> yeah yeah. Yeah, what Finger. Well, I'll say. Oh, that's a good. Thank you. I'm I'm learning about Zoom. Thank you very much. Okay, finger quotes. Uh, so, um, what what you started? What I started to see as I was getting booked more and more on the road, not opening for Woody and Miles, but the Kingston Trio. Not my audience. Oh. Not my audience, get the fuck off the stage and bring on the Kingston Trio. That's what wow. was going on. Wow, finger quotes, people. Okay, so uh, so that's what was going on. I, I you know, Woody, and then Miles Davis, and then that that brought me into another pay scale. Because, oh, he was opening for Woody Allen. He was opening for Miles Davis. Oh, well, he can open for the Kingston Trio. Now we're going to book him on big things. But no, and then that was a second, well, it was another lesson I learned. Okay, you've got to find your own audience, Larry. You can't just go in and think the people who love the Kingston Trio are going to love you. No, that's not how it works, man. So you're going to get booed if you they don't want critical thinking, you know? Uh, and I was now into Lenny Bruce material, Carlin prior uh, moms, Mabley red Fox. I mean, just on and on. So uh, the, the cops. And then, uh, then I was doing arena shows. I was, I was opening for the, uh, for the 11 spoonful and the blues project and rock and roll. And, uh, uh, uh I hear right,
0: open for jefferson airplane
1: or oh, jefferson airplane well before they were jefferson airplane oh wow. uh i mean before they had that name but you know marty Balin yeah. and, and uh, yeah uh it's opening for them hey, when they were in their nightclub when they were in their own nightclub uh well they, I don't think they owned a the nightclub but I think they had a nightclub in San Francisco that they were a permanent the, the bar band. Okay so they they were the the Jefferson airplane with a permanent bar band. And I would, after my last show at the committee, which was, I think at 1130 uh, during the week, I would run over to their nightclub, which was not too far away. Uh, and uh, they would let me do a set to open for, for uh, Marty Balin and his band. Cause the, cool. the band and Marty Balin had come to see the committee. So they, you know, when I said, Hey, hey Marty, can I, 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 they said, go to see this um, rock band there. There's a really good rock band. Went to see him was the Jefferson airplane. And I went up and I said, Hey, can I open for you guys on a, on a Wednesday night or Saturday night? You know, when I get through with the committee and they had seen this, yeah, that would be cool. So I was still keeping my stuff fresh and making new material. And every once in a while I take a vacation from the committee improvising it's improv you can leave whenever you want somebody will just come in and improvise your part i mean when you come back maybe you've lost your part because they're funnier you know they improvised it better or changed the scene you can do that it's improv so you are you just improvise a different one larry or or you just step in you say i'm back thank you you know so i was opening for for them and then the love and spoonful came to me and said uh um, hey, we saw you. I said, Where did you see me? How did you see me? And you go, Well, hey, we saw you in Greenwich Village. When? when you were playing, you know, when you were opening for Dave Van Romp, the same thing. You know, when you were opening because Zaryanofsky and all the members, see, that's the thing. When I was in Greenwich Village, everybody that I was going to meet for the rest of my life was there when they were 15, 16, 17, and
0: 18.
1: Yeah. So Frank Zappa, everybody. I mean, the Mothers of Invention, but they weren't Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. They were just separate musicians. Yeah. Just so I would open for them. They would open for me. It it was just a mishmash. And then they started to coagulate into groups, the Mamas and the Papas. I mean, I was best friends with um, um, Mama Cass in the village she was a hat check girl in oh. Jim Paul Isler's uh when I was opening for Woody Allen in the village the first gig that I had from Jack Rollins I was opening for Woody at the Jim Paul Isler's downstairs at the upstairs and the hat check girl was Mama Cass and so I would hang out in the hot check room with her we would just talk until I had to go on I mean, and we were buddies. She's really funny, very hip. Uh, I didn't know she was a singer at all. Mm. I, I, I had no idea. And then later, she got into with the mugworms, went down to, you know, I don't know, Cuba or Puerto Rico, God knows where. I don't know, maybe Florida. I don't know. And, then, and then they got the mugworms and then Mamas and the Papas. And, you know, so they, so I was opening for the Mamas and the Papas and blah, blah, blah. So when I was opening for the uh, Love and Spoonful, because they had seen me in a a village and they needed a comedian to open. And that's when the cops started, because I thought, oh, the college crowd, that's my people, I've found my audience. And I get on the stage, I don't know, 2,000 people, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, huge auditorium, I open for them just the first night it was opening night of their tour i was going to go on tour with them opening night of their tour get on stage they open with the clean stuff you know the mild stuff and then you get into it and then blah 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 and then the critical thinking stuff you know carlin Pryor, lenny and they just shut up and started booing and then they were pulling off the uh, armrests of the audit- old auditorium chairs uh chairs you know the seats the wooden ones they would, if you hit them from behind, they would come off. They would pull, and they would throw them at me at the stage. You know, the first two rows. You're like, Get off the stage. We don't want to hear that. No, the funny stuff. That's what they were yelling, like from the Woody Allen movie. Do the funny stuff. Do the funny stuff. I said, no, it's just naked. I said, naked. That's what I said. I said, you know, oh, you're naked. Uh, I was doing the, I was playing God. So that was it. they didn't want to hear religion. No religion. I said I'm playing God. Come on, man. I was talking to them. You know, I, I, would, I would talk to two thousand people like I'd go you know go, okay I'm I'm God and here's this little human being and you and he's naked. Boom! No religion. No religion. No no body parts. No body parts. I go what? I, and then I just I just broke character. I said, Are you kidding? Yeah. This is what I said. <laughs> you're a college audience. What happened Is sex, drugs, rock and roll? This is where you're supposed to like this stuff. I try to explain to them that they were wrong. I was, I was explaining to the audience what they should be doing. You should like this stuff. You're, you're a college crowd. And they go, no, the funny stuff, the funny stuff. So it's okay, 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 stop. I'll do the funny stuff. Okay, okay. And they kind of quieted down. They stopped, and I'm dodging these things, man. They they hit me. They makes them do some damage. So I I did, you know, clean stuff, and they just quieted down and started laughing, like oh, like wow. like the other thing didn't happen.
0: Yeah. So on about
1: so about eight, yeah. I did ten minutes of the funny stuff, the clean stuff, and then I got a really big laugh. So I thought, you know, to myself, that, okay, they're on my side now. They understand who I am. So I just went, okay, so let's get back to God and the little naked guy. <laughs> no, no, no. And then yeah, they turned on the lights in the auditorium so I could see that the Last two or three rows in the back of the auditorium were pulling off their armrests and passing them down to the front row because they didn't have any more armrests. So they were throwing those things up. And then I see the cops coming down the side aisles, the wall aisles, and from both sides of the stage, 10 cops on each side. And they marched up. And I was just stunned, man. And And the audience just shut up to watch this. They just stopped throwing things. They just quieted down, and the cops marched up from both sides. And I just stood there in awe. I was, I was, I was god, I was gobsmacked. I was godsmacked. And they come up and they say, "You have to get off the stage now." And I said, "Okay, fine." So each cop just uh, from each side, one cop from each side, just put a hand on my shoulder. And they weren't rough. They were very, very polite. I don't think that they even know why they were pulling me off the stage. That's Because I looked at all the cops. They weren't angry. They were just normal human beings dressed in cop uniforms taking this, this strange tall kid off of the stage for what they could for no reason at all, except the, 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 the kids were booing yeah, so for, for saying God and naked. That was, that was the only two curse words that I got out of my mouth before the booing and the cops showed up. Why do you up. think
0: that is? Why do they have such a strong reaction?
1: It was, I think, well, that's a good that's a good question. It never occurred to me, except that that's the reaction I got from the Kingston Trio when I was in a nightclub in Jack's on the Highway. And I started to do... Uh, a critical thinking material mm-hmm. in a nightclub in the middle of a snowstorm outside. So there was not that many people in the audience. But when you're on stage at a nightclub, first of all, the stage is only about that high for you on the radio. My yeah. fingers are about yeah. five inches apart.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, more of an
1: it's five. It's, the stage is for the band. You know, it's for dancing. There's a dance floor. Yeah. And there's a little upstep, you know, where the band. So I was on the, quote, unquote, air, <laughs> air, air quotes, uh, stage. And the, the light, I couldn't see the audience. I just heard, you know, tittering and, and I could hear smiling. But, you know, there was only like 10 or 15 people in the audience. There was a snowstorm outside. It was a Boston. It was Boston. Jack's on the highway. So, uh, you know, I I didn't mind the fact that I didn't hear, you know, loud laughter, but they were amused. They were amused, and that was fine. And I was opening for the Kingston Trio, and the money was good. So all of a sudden, out of the darkness, across this big dance floor, comes this guy, this bohunk, this starker, this lumberjack in a suit. And he had an upside down beer bottle in his hand, and he was angry, and he just very slowly walking across the dance floor and and was yelling at me saying, get the fuck off the stage and bring on the Kingston trio. Shut the fuck up. Exact quote. And I just said, okay. And I just walked off the stage because I mean, the guy was, there's no contest, man. He would have just murdered me. So I just got off the stage. So when the eleven spoonful when these people, I thought, oh, it's the same thing. Only it's now 2000 people, not 15 people in a snowstorm.
0: Yeah. Is, but why
1: those kids? Well, I, that's what it confused me. That's why I said, hey, you're a college crowd. Why are you booing me? It's
0: so unusual. It's <laughs> just. But now you have all those stories.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I've had quite a lot where well, I wrote a book about it. It's called That Guy. I mean, I'm trying to get it published right now, but there's it, all these stories, you know, and uh, and, more, and I'm excited and to read it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's we
0: been nice to having to you as an open book.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. so I mean, but the, the, the only way I could figure out the love and spoonful, by the way, that was the first, opening night of their tour of America. And I was on the tour. I was the opening. We went into the next stop was Northwestern University, which was at the other end of the spectrum. It was up in the West. I was Michigan or Wisconsin, somewhere in Northwestern University. And I feared, uh, Love and Spoonful loved the fact that I caused the riot, that cops had pulled me off the stage. They kept on yelling from the, Side. Well, well, when they were throwing stuff, when they were yelling, get off the stage, the funny stuff. The Love and Spoonful were in the wings yelling, no, do the naked stuff. <laughs> Dude, because they wanted a riot. They wanted the publicity.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they thought
1: yeah. this was the coolest thing that could happen to them. They maybe even thought that would, would happen. That's why they hired me. I, I don't know that, but, but when the cops pulled me up the stage to go backstage, you know, it's empty backstage. There's nothing there except the band waiting to go on and all their equipment to be, you know, but, um, well, the, their equipment was set up already. But they were waiting. So when the cops pulled me off stage and they got me backstage, the band surrounded the cops. Well, there was 20 cops and five members of the band. So they didn't surround them. But they did plead my case. They they did say, hey, no, man, leave him alone. I mean, he wasn't saying anything bad. You know, why did you pull him off the stage? And then the cops just didn't say anything. They they just left. I think they were embarrassed. That's why I, I think that they didn't know why. Because the cops were called the first time they started to boo. When they started to boo, the dean, who was in the back there, called the police. So I cleaned up my act. For 10 minutes, mm-hmm. the cops came. So the cops were standing in the back listening to clean stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I
1: said, okay, let's go back to God and the naked guy. <laughs> that's all. They started booing. The dean said, pull him off the stage. Wow. And they started to, So the cops had no idea yeah. what the deal was. Yeah. You know, but my figuring was oh, I see, it's, this is the South, it's Missouri, it's St. Louis, Missouri, so these people, these college kids are at where I was at when I was in college. Yeah. That's who these people are. That's me booing, you know, when I was in Syracuse. Oh, the whole country is not Greenwich Village (laughs) and I was opening for you know Jack had when he was booking me was very cognizant of my act and where it was going so he would kind of you know massage me into the right places for you know but I wasn't aware that I had to find my own audience and then finally Jack just was booking me all over and I had to find out myself so that was a little a rude awakening. Wow. But it happened several times when finally I called. I said, look, Jack, I can't do this anymore. I'm a middle-class Jewish kid. You know, and I'm just talking what I see and think during the day. And it was fine in the village. Nobody booed me. You know, the worst they did was sit quietly for my three minutes to be up. So the next, you know, for, so their friend could get up and do three mm-hmm. minutes. But they don't boo. So, I, so what he said was, why don't you join Second City? They're doing Lenny stuff and Colin's stuff and prior stuff, but they own the theater. So if a guy comes at you with a beer bottle, they own the theater. They'll throw him out. And then, then he said the capper. And besides, the theater at Second City is at least three to four feet high. He'd have to climb up on the stage <laughs> and you have to other people. So, you know, you're cool. There's time for you to escape. Yeah thanks jack yeah <laughs> okay but that's what i did cool. i joined so second you, city
0: so you went but to think, so you went to second city like already a very very established comic so that that's very interesting did yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you meet del close obviously you did around oh, the, i
1: Del close and i were roommates
0: oh, yeah okay yeah. wait i want to hear about that we need How to hear that
1: we lived yeah he was very funny <laughs> we so, we learned learn a lot together. from you as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, that I don't know, but I I learned a lot from him. I mean, he was amazing. You know, he he's a he was an he was an improv guru. I don't know if he was a genius, but he was he was right up there. <laughs> he was a Sufi man. He was an improv Sufi. Uh, you no, know, we we went to improv school together. When when I because the, you have the wrong assumption about comedy being a stand-up comedian and being an improver is totally two different worlds. Yes,
0: they are, yes. It's like
1: being a mechanic and being a, a hair dyer. There's no connection at all. Yes. Uh, the only thing is, the only thing that is comparable between the two is memory, photographic memory for setup and punchline. <laughs> that's the only thing you remember and sometimes you forget the setup and you're trying to remember what was the setup i i knew i got a laugh here but i can't remember what the setup was so and that's important you know but so uh so i had to learn how to improvise and, and again they the learning curve every time learning curve learning curve every time so uh I auditioned. I mean, I could just go on and on. You want to hear about the audition? You want to hear about me going to school with Del Close? You want to hear about Del Close? Yeah, I want
0: to hear, like, the well, early... Because, like, we're improvisers as well, so we want to know a little oh, bit about like, really? early yeah. improv,
1: yeah. Oh, great. I'm talking to improv.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, let me
1: tell you about improv. Man. Let me just lay this out for you. Okay. Um, we were sitting... I, I went to school... I was taught by Viola Spolin. Does that yeah. hit a note for you? Yeah. She is the the godfather, godmother, godmother, of improv. She is the Lee Strasberg of improvisation. And you know, no plotting, no no mental writing, no plotting. Uh, agree? Yes, but yes, and yes, yes and and. Yes. Uh, and she does. So me and Dell. Because I was a stand-up comedian and I auditioned—not as a stand-up comedian. The audition was just amazing. I was auditioned and directed by eventually by Paul Sills, Viola's son, oh, the yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: founder of the of the Second City. So <clears throat> he knew I was a stand-up comedian. So when I auditioned for him, first of all, I had to go to a, a little auditioning school that was run by Alan Meyerson, who later became the director of the committee, which is where I went to. So in those, I was auditioned by Alan Meyerson, who later, years later, two years later, would hire me in the committee. But he was the one who auditioned me for Second City. He saw that I was a stand-up, and I needed a little teaching, you know, to get the gist of it. It's not making up jokes. That's deadly. So he said, you gotta go to classes, okay? So I went to a couple of classes. I, okay, I got it. I was a, By now, I was a fast learner. That, that helped being on the stage a lot and, and understanding quickly. So I picked it up. Okay. And then he says, okay, now you can audition for Paul Sills for the company. Now, now you're ready to audition. So I got a phone call saying auditioning for Paul Sills. He flew to New York to audition me. Oh, look, he auditioned a lot of people. So I auditioned. Now here's the audition. This is really cool. I don't know if it brings a bell with you two. So, but this is my audition for Paulson. He said, "Okay, meet me in an office." This is a meet me at blah 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 blah, which was an office building in Midtown Manhattan. There's no theaters in Midtown. This is the business district, yeah. and it was in an office in a major office. You know, with cubby holes and glass windowed offices, and you know, meet a big conference tables and yeah. classrooms so you know i come in i get off the elevator and okay i go to this room and there's paul sitting in an office behind a desk of an executive you know it's like a ceo
0: yeah
1: you know business nothing to do with theater and he comes in hi you're, you're larry hankin yeah okay so he says okay I, so I, there's no place for me to sit i stood in front of the desk like i was i don't know
0: being a presentation
1: (laughs) for my presentation exactly thank you so uh i'm just standing there and he goes okay so let me just tell you give me a i'll give you a a clue okay larry okay all right the first thing i want you to know is please do not try to make me laugh please i've laughed enough today i'm tired i don't want to laugh i don't feel like laughing So that's out, okay? The second thing, there's a key hidden in this office somewhere. I want you to look for it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it? That's it? Yeah, that's it. Okay. So I just start to look for it, you know. And um, I, I, I start to look around for, you know, first I, you know, whatever you do. I mean, I was like, I thought, wow. <laughs> I was so stunned that I had nothing, which I guess would, you know, help. But so I looked for a little while, maybe about a minute. I don't know. And they said, okay, thank you. And I go, oh, okay. And then I just stood there again in front of the desk. And he said, no, that's it. Okay, that, that's it? I can go? He says, yeah, thank you. So I left. That was the audition. So I said, well, that was a big nothing. I guess, you know, I didn't measure up. And then about three days later, I got a phone call. You're hired, you know. You're going to, whoa, yeah. So he says, you're going to St. Louis, you know, like Tuesday. What? I'm in New York. I thought you guys are in Chicago. What's going on? There's a, I mean, there is a second city in New York there was, yeah, it was yeah. but uh, i'm from new york i figured i'd go into the new york company or we'll, we'll be sent to chicago but no you're going to new york what's that all about well this the crystal palace which is uh, uh, fran Landisman, who was a great jazz songwriter That's and cool. her husband uh Landisman, owned the Crystal Palace. Also, I guess that's what she did with her jazz song "Money," bought a nightclub, and they booked Second City into Crystal Palace in Missouri. Now I had been there, booed off the stage with the second with the eleven spoonful. So, um, so this is St. Louis, Missouri, same same city.
0: Yeah.
1: I go, wow, man, what a return. Okay, so they booked. Uh, and so he, so what the second city had done, Paul says that made a new company called the road company. I was, that was what I was hired to do. And the road company went to the end. We were booked for th- three months with an open end contract, but we were booked for three months, man. So we were there for three months. We had to come up with our own show. In other words, it's an improv. So there's five improv actors from New York and second and, and Chicago X, some no, we were all new, all all hired new, you know. Audition, went to school, and now we're sent to St. Louis with a new director. And what we had to do was come up with a show and play there for three months. In other words, we were sent from scratch, just five actors and a director sent down there, and they want. Well, what are we doing? What? Why, why are we being sent down there? They want a show. Uh, for three months. Your improvisers, come up with a show. Goodbye, thank you, here's your tickets. Boom. And they just sent us down there, cold, man. Wow. Just And we we opened for St. Louis. And, and what they did, St. Louis, they booked tours. You know, a busload of uh, Daughters of the Purple Goose. That was the first booking we had. Old ladies with purple hair, not that they dyed their hair purple, but they all had white hair and there was a certain kind of a tinge to it. I don't know. It's kind of normal. It's not a a dye, I don't think, but they were called Daughters of the Purple Goose, just like Daughters of the American Republic. You know, it's a group and they showed up in a bus, two busloads. And they were bus loaded in and, and that's what we did for the first month. It was like tours, that's, okay. so that's how they came up with the concept of let's get a show in. We'll book tours in, you know, to make, cause they had figured a theater would be a kind of a cool thing. So that, that was the first month, but it was, they loved it. I mean, we were ready to be, you know, kicked out after a month, tours. We, we were all, we didn't know what we had. We didn't know if yeah. the improv worked because it was new. We had to come up with new material for new people, yeah. but it was a success. We were held over for a year. We were there for a wow. year, man. Wow. And finally, Amazing. Paul Sills, after a year, we were down there just like they forgot about us. <laughs> you know, the, by, by the second city, we were just in St. Louis and there's nothing going on. I mean, there's 3.2 beer down there. All the bars are closed on Sunday. I mean, it's just awful. And we were in the middle of a business district. So the weekends were just closed. You know, our big nights for the, for the nightclub. Yeah. But during the day, there's nothing, there. And we lived above the club. Oh, wow. So we were stranded. Here's what we did on Saturdays and Sundays. There was a trolley car. We had uh, we lived above the nightclub, and our uh, I, my my roommate was Jack Burns. We we had a window out onto the street. Our, our little house uh, apartment. Jack Burns was later when he was fired from Second City. He wasn't fired. He was like, let go because there's too many people in the company. He wasn't fired. He was really cool. But he, he was like, he went to Hollywood and he wrote Hee Haw. You ever hear that uh, TV show? Hee Yeah. Jack yeah. Burns was my roommate. And when he was fired, he said, OK. I said, I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Hollywood. What are you going to do? I mean, there was no I didn't. You know, what's your next job if you if you're let go from Second City in St. Louis? Where do you go? He said, "I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to become a writer." Okay, I see you. But I thought, you know, that he's going to be an executive in New York somewhere. Forget show business. The next thing I hear, he sold hee haw. He just he just went there, wrote hee haw, and retired. Became a. uh, I don't know if he cured his alcoholism, uh, alcoholism or he became an alcoholic. I don't know which which happened. I know that he was a heavy drinker when he was my roommate. I know that. Oh. He, he wrecked my apartment, our apartment, twice <laughs> on, on alcohol. I mean, you got to be, I think you're an alcoholic if you turn over the icebox, the
0: refrigerator. <clears throat> yeah,
1: yeah, how about that, Hank? Yeah, that's pretty cool, Jack. That's that's good. Uh, so finally Paul Sills flew down to uh, St. Louis to find out what the hell we were doing that to be held over. Because all they were saying was, no, we're gonna hold them over. That was the only note he would get. He was no, we're holding them over for another another two months, another two months, three months. Okay, we're going to the end of the year. And so you go, okay, fine, because they were just getting the, you know, the the money there cut yeah. the percentage but finally he flew down to see what the hell is going on you know, maybe we could take some you know, steal some funny stuff for, to Chicago so he came down he watched the show he thought it was pretty cool and he took Jack and I back and he fired well he didn't fire he just let everybody go he so said he's closing the show he said okay enough we did our you know one year here thank you very much we're closing the show. And he didn't tell everybody else that Jack and I were going up there. I, I don't know. Uh, one, the girl became a, a very, uh, she became a very uh, popular, a dramatic actress. Uh, she uh, You know, like uh, Lee Strasberg School. She went from there to the Lee Strasberg School in New York and became a dramatic actress on television. So we went uh, up there to, to Chicago, and that's where, boom, I became how to go back to school because uh, we were removed from Second City, Viola and Paul Sills. We just had the hired director down there for a year. We were down there for a year, and the new director was down there for a year. So Jack and I brought, we said, we got to get you into the Chicago thinking kind of so I went, had to go to school with Del Close. Now, Del Close was in the company. He was in the show already.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, God knows why he was in my class with other beginners. But, but we just hit it off because we thought Viola Spolin was full of crap. <laughs> I mean, we'd, uh, you know, why were we here? I had a year under my belt down there. And he was in the company. So why were we in this class? Well, the reason was very simple. Paul Sells had a rule. If you're new coming into the company, that was for me, you had to go to class. You had to go to Viola's class. And I think that was what Viola said to her son, Paul. Anybody you hire has to go to my class first because she was writing a book called Improv for the Theater. Have you read it? Right. She was writing the book then. So she needed a class uh, to write the book out of uh, or from. Yeah. So she was, we didn't know this, but she was writing the book. But after And so that's why I think Paul put Del Close into the class. He wanted to get not a whole bunch of, since she was writing the book, yeah. he wanted uh, somebody who knew something. And, and del close knew a lot in the class to give her material you know he would correct people or he would improv write. you know just a, what is it called a judas goat he was a judas goat but we had we hit it off me and, and del so we would always sit in the back and just mock her You know, it's full of shit, man, you know, because we knew, you know, he was in the show. I had been in the show, so we didn't need this crap. And then after class, she would say, I'm going to uh, this cafe, you know, coffee house down the block from Second City, where she would go have coffee and kind of make notes from from class for her book. Mm -hmm. And what she would do. Is after each because we had to go at least once a week. I think it was three times a week, but at least once a week, she would invite the class to go with her to talk about the book. You know, and there was a, a table, a, a booth in the back where they would say, Save it for Viola and her class. They're coming in to talk, you know. So we'd sit around, and Dell and wouldn't go. He would always have an excuse, you know, but sometimes he would, and he was just bored to death, man. He just couldn't take her, but he had to go. I mean, Andy was in the show. It's just anyway, so we would diss her just all the time, and she would read the book and things like that. And I would just be there because I wanted to be good uh, again, a good son. Yeah, and and I wanted to get you know perks and gold stars because I wanted to get into the company fast. And finally, I I, I did. I graduated, and um we, we we remain friends i went into the show del was already in the show so he didn't have to. so I, I got into the show and then there was too many people in the show in that show yeah so i ha- i was let go and then i was explained that no you're not being fine this is this is why i was let go there was too many people in the show there is i don't know if you know this because you're in improv yeah But five, four guys and a girl, I don't know where they came up with that formula, but that that worked. I'm not saying that seven guys and a girl wouldn't work or seven girls and a guy wouldn't work, but everybody did four guys and a girl. I don't know where that came from, but it seemed to work. And there was like seven guys and two girls in this show that I was in. So there was just too many people. The reason is that this just not enough improv for everybody to get enough chops going. So they, fire, they, they let me go, and I think somebody else or whatever. I think it was Jack. I don't know. Yeah. But I was let go. So I hung around just, you know, because I had no place to go. Yeah. So I was sleeping on one of the improvisers' couches. Uh, and about a week later, two weeks after I was – let go, retired. Um, a car came through with Alan Meyerson, the guy who auditioned me first to get me on this roller coaster, came through and said, hey, I hear you were fired. He, he drove drove in, and then I used to hang out at the bar. I had no place to go. I had no money. I was sleeping on people's couches in Chicago. I didn't know that town. Uh, so he said he said is there a guy named larry hankin here i said yes there's a guy in a car outside wants to talk to you so i go out and this again it was snowing in chicago it was alan said hey come on we're going to chicago we're going to san francisco so i went to san francisco uh with them i said i'm going back to new york i don't know where you guys are going so we're going to san francisco to start a new company i said i don't believe you you know i've been in and out of, you know, Chicago and New York and St. Louis and stand up. And I'm, I'm through, I'm just going home. I'm going back to New York. I'm starting all over. I'm going back to the village. I'm doing three minutes. Goodbye. And I went and I said, if you want me, send me a plane ticket. Goodbye. And I just went back inside. He drove off into a snowstorm. And I got a plane ticket about two weeks later, flew to San Francisco and about a year or two later, when we finally became a, a huge success, Del Close shows up and says, I want to join the company. I quit Chicago. And so we were roommates. So that's how we became roommates. Wow! So we were roommates. And that was a crazy time, man. Yeah,
0: what's
1: that? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, because he would come up with these weird... Uh, conclusions about what he saw and put, he would put two and two together and come up with 743. I, I don't know how he did that. Uh, but he's like, like he would say, he would go down to the cellar. He was at somebody's house. and go down to the cellar. He was living there for a while before he moved in with me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he, he was obviously doing drugs, I guess. He would go down to the cellar and you would hear, and then he would come up and then no sound at all. We thought, what's, and then he would just come up and he'd be okay. And then he'd go down to the cellar. <laughs> and then he'd come up and he'd go, and then he would come up and he says, okay, I've proved it. Proved what? He said, there's a certain way, a certain way that if you walk, you would have this flash of inspiration or whatever. This, this epiphany. Really?
0: Wow, okay. Because
1: of the way that you walked? Yeah. <clears throat> and so somebody went down with him, who, who later told the tale to me. So he went downstairs. One of the pipes were leaking. Uh, you know, it's a cellar. He went down to the cellar. One of the water pipes was leaping, dripping, and there was a puddle. And in the puddle, oh,
0: what I think it is.
1: was a live, raw electric wire.
0: I knew it. I knew that's what this was.
1: And Bell was so high that he would go bump, 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 bump in a very orderly pattern and step oh in the god. puddle
0: <laughs> no. this is a so and, it nev-
1: and it never occurred to him to, to just take the fucking god. wire out of the puddle man
0: oh my god it never occurred that's to him so sorry that's what i'm saying you seem like a very bizarre man who was this brain so brain he, brain
1: he would brain. come up with the conclusion of, oh, i have found yeah no. here's well, the, the the total opposite of that When he was in the committee and we were roommates one day because he knew I was a stand-up comedian way back in the day. He used to be a stand-up comedian. That's how he started in show business too. He was a stand-up comedian. And he said to me, now this is in the the mid-60s, 65, 66, we were in in North Beach. He wanted to show me that he was a stand-up comedian. And he said, I got a couple of new ideas i don't want to test it out and so he had gone around and we were a tourist attraction by then so he'd gone around to all the uh basically the topless places topless was big in the 65 so he went around to the topless bars
0: the types of places the the dead sh- was going excuse me Is that the type of places the dead was going the or dead yeah or not grateful uh, dead yeah yeah
1: No, they weren't playing. Were they playing topless bars? I don't I don't know. I I, I don't know. But he went around, Dell went around to asking if he if he could do a a 10-minute set, you know, just to try out some material. Uh Uh, And and we were so popular in North Beach, and these nightclubs were in North Beach, that they they knew him and they knew the popularity of the committee, and they thought, oh, he's gotta be funny. He wants 10 minutes, you know, maybe it'll be a draw. Well, you know, whatever. So uh, he said to me, uh, I'm going up to the uh, the top hat. I think, was the top of this place, uh, Carol Dota. So we went in there and he said, I, I, wanna, I want you to come with me. I want you to show you what I'm doing. I got some new stuff. So we go to this, uh, well, it was a strip joint anyway. There's a pole and girls on the pole. And... Or well, you know, we come in. There's those guys in there, just guys, and over the loudspeaker, he said, "Okay, I'm gonna go on." Said, please, please, please. You know, all the, ladies and gentlemen, you know, the top hat is proud to present the comedy stylings of Mister Dell Close. And the girls split from the stage, you know, and uh, the band played him on, and then split, and the crowd was just stunned, like, you know, <laughs> what the. Okay, so they were just stunned to quietness, like, what's yeah. going on? And Dell just sauntered onto the stage with his hand, one hand in his pocket. I don't know if you know Dell, I was, you know, <laughs> was here. Was a cigarette, you know, in his, yeah. in his hand. For you people on radio, I've got a cigarette in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and You know, a half-smoked cigarette in his hand. And one hand in his pocket, and he jumped to He just walked it with a you know, smile on his face, like he, like he was the club owner. You know, like he came on the stage to announce something, and he goes, "Hi," that's all. Just hi, and he just started talking for ten minutes, and within, I'd say, two minutes or less, these guys were laughing at what he was saying. I mean, they got every. He was he was brilliant. He killed. He was great. Wow. He was yeah. And then he just said, thank you very much. And he walked off the stage, you know, like, you know, like I knew I could do this. I told you so. Yeah. And he said, you know, what'd you think, Hank? And I said, that was fucking great, man. Are you kidding me? It, was, it was amazing is what it was. It just blew my mind. So that's, you know, that's another side of, of him. I mean, he could pull it off. Not only was he weird, he could pull it off. God, you got time for one more Del Close story?
0: Sure, sure, sure yeah.
1: So he goes, he's my roommate. So I go go out, you know, one, one day, uh, you know, out for the day. And I come back and uh, no, you know, nobody's home. But it's, it seems like somebody was home or, or maybe the door was open. You know, I didn't have to put the key in the, in the lock. So obviously, did he leave and not lock the door? And then I see, you know, oh, no, I think, and I started yelling because there, there was somebody here I, I, because you wouldn't just leave like this. So, so I like, hey, Dell!" And then I go to the bathroom and I try to go to the bathroom and the door's locked. Well, you can only lock the bathroom door from the inside. So pound on the door, Dell. no answer. You know, I try to always, oh, my God, he OD'd in there. Oh, my God, he's dead, and I can't get in. I got to fucking break down the door. So I'm pounding on the door. Maybe I could wake him up, you know. Dell, del, Dell, Dell. And finally, I hear movement in there. And very slowly, I hear the click, the door open, and it opens a peek. And there's Dell, and he's full of perspiration, you know. And he goes, oh, Hankin, how you doing, man? Come on in. <laughs> so I come in. <laughs> I go. What the? What the fuck are you doing, man? He said. Oh. I, I thought you were the cops. What? what okay. So I'm the cops. What did you lock the door for? He said, I was hiding. You were hiding you locked the door see i mean you know that that's not logical you're hiding why then they know you're in there why did you lock the door well i didn't want him to come in and you you were hiding so so where were you hiding it's a fucking bathroom she says i was hiding under the tub now we had one of these old-fashioned tubs with ah. the iron claws that, you know, they just round on the bottom, and they yeah. it's up on. So you could, you could slide under there.
0: Yeah.
1: He would, and I look, you were under there? He said, yeah, man. And obviously, he had shot up. So I, I go, okay, fine. So that was, uh, okay, I now remember what the clue was. Uh, there must be somebody here. When I came in, this is weird. Okay, so I, I come in. I'm looking around. There's nobody there. The thing that clued me in when I left, what I did was we had a it was a big bedroom, and then there was a, a side room. So he slept in the side room, which was like I guess like a I don't know you you would put a couch there or something, and it, and it had a, a window so you could look out. So like a city room,
0: yeah.
1: off of the bedroom. So that that was his room. In my room, I had a big bed, and I had a hammock strung uh, crosswise from the corner of the room to the corner of the room, okay. so it was on a diagonal, okay. so the bed's this way, you people listen to For the radio, yeah. Yeah. get an internet, get YouTube, or have these people get on Zoom. Okay. Uh, but you you got the idea the the, the hammock hammock is diagonal the bed is perpendicular perpendicular thank you (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: so um, so what i would do is i would lay in the hammock and swing and then roll off the thing onto the bed it was really cool
0: it was a big hammock yeah
1: okay now when i walked in and that was, that was the setup. So when I, when I walked into the bedroom looking for him, I looked up at the ceiling and opposite the hammock. So if the hammock is diagonal, uh-huh. across the ceiling to make an X, you know, if it was over the hammock, the opposite, there was black dots, a black dot line across the uh, other angle of, okay. the, of the hammock. So if you put them together, it would be an X. Okay, I couldn't fit. Well, that wasn't there when I left. Oh. I so don't. that was I thought, if Dell did that, first of all, I don't see how he could do that. Even if you stood on the hammock, the hammock would cave in.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and to stipple that, I so so there was an impossibility here. So that was what led me to think that maybe. Dell was still around. I I, I don't know. And he did that. And I got to find out why. So when he came out of the bathroom, that was the first question. I brought him into the bedroom and I pointed up. And I said, what the hell is that? And how did it get there? And he goes, oh, that. Oh, well, I got in the hammock. And I shot up in the hammock. And I was cleaning the blood out of the needle by squirting it up as I swung in the hammock.
0: Oh my God! <laughs> to
1: clean that, you know. And so I, I shot up a couple of times. I got twice, I think. So it was just that was blood. That was black dots were blood on the ceiling. Oh my wow. goodness! So I mean, you know. That's the roommate. roommate. It's Dell, you know, it's Dell, And yet he invented the Harold, man. Yeah. He came up with the Harold. Yeah. You know, by the way, I've been in many Harold's and I've seen many Harold's. I've only actually seen the Harold work three times and one, when it did actually work the way it was designed to work, I fell out of my chair laughing It was so hysterically funny, but it only happened once. And it was by the upright citizens company Mm and the company in New York. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it's a very difficult, you you have to be really understand the concept of what he was talking about. And I did see it work perfectly only once in, you know, many, many years. But when it did work, boy, wow. (laughs) Uh, So I understand Dell and how obscure and convoluted his thinking is, mm-hmm. but he was right. In other words, even even if it didn't work, the concept, when it did, I, I guess it's like looking for E equals MC square. You only got you only got to have that thing work once, and you got the answers to a lot of other problems. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Dell was that kind of guy. I mean, he had the information. If he could just tap into exactly what it was, he was right on and he was a great improviser i really, we improv i loved improvising with him there is a classic scene you can between me and him it was it was called it was a drug scene and it's on one of the albums oh, it's been oh, okay. preserved cool. uh it was it's about drugs and it's it's a classic and we also did another classic with john brent and it's called how to hip how to talk hip there's another uh thing you, you know that one right or, or heard of it anyway uh, so yeah but i haven't thought about that in a long time but the scene that i did with him yeah we, we ran that for that that ran for a long time that was in the show i don't know what it was called but something to do, but it was a drug scene it was about two junkies who had run out of veins that was the premise what happens what do you do if you've run out of fucking veins to shoot up in, you know, what do you do? And yeah, it's it's a great scene. I'm not going to tell you any more about it. Uh, so that, that that's my story. That And I'm stuck with it.
0: This wow. This has been so wonderful, yeah. Larry. Uh, I feel like you could have went on for two more hours for sure. For well, buy the book.
1: If, yeah, if anybody out there knows a publisher or a manager who wants to, I mean, I uh, you can't get a book published without, a literary agent or a manager. It's like being back in the, in the Greenwich Village, you know, representation, representation. Yeah. Uh, well, the book the thing is, is different than show business, even though it's in entertainment. But you need a letter, and I don't have any more agents anymore because I got out of show business. I'm a writer now
0: yeah. and a musician.
1: Uh, I just pointed to a guitar. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs>
0: and a painter, you still paint?
1: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! So go to yeah. thereallarryhankin.com. That's my website, thereallarryhankin.com. Don't go to larryhankin.com. That's been being held for ransom by a hacker who 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 bought it and it wants is holding it for ransom so i just got my brother's in real...
0: security, so we'll talk after too
1: <laughs> oh, okay. so so the real hankin.com. and up there are 40 of my paintings but also t-shirts you see this i'm, yeah, p- I'm yeah. pointing at one of my paintings yeah. too bad if you're on radio
0: yeah uh, no, they look amazing we'll we'll do a screenshot for them too so when we talk oh, okay
1: so that t-shirts. and uh, they're all they're all on t-shirts for really cheap t-shirts but they're great and the t-shirt manufacturer and distributor of these t-shirts the paintings are museum quality they're like these that you see on my wall here they're three feet by four feet they're museum quality
0: like the graffiti how you did the graffiti kind of feel behind like it's cool you guys have to see it i'm definitely gonna post the screenshot (laughs) okay but
1: But uh, they're like like $300 to $400 a piece. They're they're museum quality. But the T-shirts are museum quality, but they're really cheap. They're like $13 or something like that. But they're great. And all of the paintings are on T-shirts, so whichever you want. Okay, that's my ad.
0: <laughs> I appreciate Thank it, Larry. You so Thank you so much. much. We'll plug the book when that's coming out on our show too. Maybe we'll have another conversation. Okay, any-
1: when the when the either either, you know, if somebody cancels on you, you can always call me. But but uh when the book comes out, you know, let's do this again. I can talk about the book, you know, so yes. you guys would help me out.
0: It definitely okay? I appreciate it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so okay. much. Whoa.